Well, you guys, we're going to get started. I want to welcome everybody to week 10 of Apologetics. We are almost there. And uh, tonight, let me just pray, and then we're going to get started. And I'm going to probably go for 50 minutes, and then we'll break. And uh, the re- what I'm going to go, by the way, and do, you guys, is three miracles tonight. And the last one is the resurrection. I want to spend the most time on that. So let's pray and get started tonight. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you that we can all gather together and learn more about your glorious truth. And tonight, Lord, we ask that you would uh, roll away the stone so that those who are lost may look in and see that you're not there in the tomb. And Lord, we ask that you would use even us and that you would help equip us to uh, make a defense for the hope that lies within us with gentleness and respect. And Lord, that I would ask too that you would give us fervor for your gospel so that we may go and proclaim your words that many may be saved. And we ask that you would accomplish this through us. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, tonight, here I have a picture of the empty tomb. And, of course, that is the miracle of miracles. And I love this picture because you can see a man looking in. I took this picture in October. And I didn't like my picture because there were people in it. And now I like the picture because there are people in it. (laughs) I see this guy peering in. I think, oh, that's pretty cool. Debbie gave me grief because every picture I have is the back of somebody's head. But uh, anyway, I like this one. Let me show you where we're going to go again tonight. We're looking at the evidence for the God of the Bible. And remember, we've been asking this question, how do we know the biblical claims are in fact true? And remember, I've showed you these strands of evidence. We have miracles, predictive prophecy, the perfection of God's word, historical and archaeological evidence. And this is all, of course, predicated on the reliability of the biblical manuscripts. Remember, a few weeks ago, we proved that we do have reliable manuscripts, don't we? Now, everything that I have highlighted in red, we've actually covered already. So tonight, we're going to be covering miracles, and every miracle we're looking at tonight is a miracle that we can prove happened through historical and archaeological evidence. In other words, I'm giving you miracles that you don't just proclaim, but rather you can prove because we have evidence for them to corroborate them. So these are things I hope that you can use when you're on the street Uh, witnessing or you're at a Perkins or or whatever, okay? Now, I'm going to start in the Old Testament tonight. And the first miracle that I want to talk about is the miracle of the fall of Jericho's walls. Now, let me set the stage for you. This would have happened around 400 B.C. And the Israelites, they would have gone into the land of Canaan with, of course, uh, Joshua as the leader. And if you recall in chapter 5, Joshua meets with the commander of the Lord. Well, in chapter 6, the commander of... I'm sorry, 1400 B.C. Yeah, thank you. 1400 B.C. Apologize for that. So 1400 B.C. Let me make sure I get it correct. And Joshua is the commander of the army in a sense, but he meets with the commander of the Lord, which is the angel of the Lord. And the angel of the Lord in chapter 6 gives him the battle plan And the battle plan is that the Israelites are going to strike up the band, remember? And they're going to go for six days in a row, walk around Jericho. And on the seventh day, they're going to walk around Jericho seven times. And there are seven priests that are going to blow their trumpet. And when they blow their shofar, the people are going to shout and the walls will collapse. Okay, so that's where we pick it up here, actually in Joshua chapter 6, verse 20. So this is what Joshua records He says, so the people shouted and the priests blew the trumpets. And when the people heard the sound of the trumpet, the people shouted with a great shout, 
and the wall fell down flat so that the people went up into the city, every man straight ahead, and they took the city. Now, what I'm going to show you is that the fact that the wall fell down flat is very unusual. And I'm going to give you evidence here from actually an archaeologist named John Garsting. Now, John Garsting was a British archaeologist, and he actually worked on the tell in Jericho from 1930 to 1936. And I want to show you what he said. He says, regarding the tell at Jericho, as to the main fact then, there remains no doubt the walls fell outward so completely that the attackers would be able to clamber up and over their ruins into the city. Why so unusual? Because the walls of cities do not fall outwards, they fall inwards. In other words, friends, when you lay siege to a city and you're hitting it with a battering ram and you're hitting it with your weaponry, your walls are going to go inward. Well, here we had the walls go outward. Okay, that's pretty cool, isn't it? So I think we can use that. Now, let me show you. There's more of a debate about this than meets the eye, though. There was a gal named Kathleen Kenyon, and she actually did research on this tell at Jericho from 1952 to 1958. And this is what she actually discovered. It's interesting. She's going to throw a little wrinkle in our evidence here by challenging the dating. But she actually corroborates a lot of the biblical account here. Let me show you. This is what she found. She says, yes, the city had been sieged. The city was strongly fortified, as was Jericho in the biblical account, according to, for instance, Joshua 2 and Joshua 6. She said, yes, the attack had occurred just after the harvest time, as Joshua 2, 5, and 7, and 15 record. The siege was short, as was evidenced by the abundance of food within the city, Joshua 6, 1. The walls of the city had been leveled in such a way as to allow invaders to literally walk up into the city, Joshua 6.20, and the city was not plundered, the city was burned. Okay. Now, again, the walls fall in such a way that they actually created a ladder for the Israeli troops to climb. That's pretty amazing, isn't it? But again, here the evidence from this Kathleen Kenyon is all the evidence supports the biblical claims that we find in Joshua. Now, here's the wrinkle that she throws in the ointment Kenyon, however, dated the attack to 1550 B.C. solely on the lack of a certain type of imported pottery common in that era. Now, let me talk about why this would be a problem. We know from 1 Kings chapter 6, verse 1, that the Israelites came out of Egyptian captivity, out of the Exodus. 480 years later, Solomon, it says, started building the temple. Okay? So we actually know, if we, we, take, we know when Solomon built the temple, if we add 480 years onto that, we come to about 1446, 1445, right in there. Well, that's when the exodus would have occurred. Well, then we have Moses leading the people out, and we know that they wandered for at least 40 years. Okay, so now we're looking at 1405, probably at the earliest, that they can go after Jericho with Joshua getting into the land of Canaan. Okay, so 1550 poses a problem for us. But again, she's basing her evidence solely on this pottery. And by the way, you guys, I hate pottery. Pottery, every time I deal with pottery, it's trouble. Okay, and here it's trouble again. So, but what I'm going to show you is that another fella jumps into the conversation as recently as 1990, and he actually refutes Kenyon. Let me show you what he says. His name's Bryant Wood. He actually looks at the tell in the 1980s but he publishes his work in 1990, and this is what he states. He says that the pottery Kenyon was referring to was actually found by Garsting and himself. Kenyon missed the evidence because she excavated in such a small area. So here, this Bryant Wood, he actually does find this pottery 
that she said was missing. And he says that John Garstang actually found it in the 30s. What had happened to Kenyon is she simply dug in too small of an area, so she never found it. Okay, so that's strike one against Kenyon and a strike for our side, right, or a good thing for our side. Now, let me show you further evidence that proves that Kenyon is wrong, and this actually should be dated, this scene, this tell should be dated about 1400. Wood also publishes the results of carbon-14 dating of charcoal found at the site that dated to 1410 B.C., plus or minus 40 years. Okay, and you can find this all in this article here. But again, that would be right within the window that our biblical account says that Joshua would have gone into Canaan and attacked Jericho. Does that make sense? So therefore, friends, look at the corroboration that we have for this miracle. We have the walls falling outward. We have even Kenyon, who was somewhat skeptical. She admits, look at all the things. The city was sieged. The city was strongly fortified. It, was, um, it wasn't plundered. It was burned. All these things that she has in her archaeological findings validates the account that we find in the book of Joshua. So friends, when you're out in the street and somebody says, well, why do you believe the Bible? That's only written by men. Well, say, have you considered the miracle at Jericho where God cared so for his people that he made the walls fall outward, making a ladder for the Israelites to climb straight forward? So again, this is a piece of evidence that we can use because this is a miracle that happened that we actually have evidence for in the archaeological record. Okay, now let me show you another one. How many here have heard of Sennacherib? Does that name roll off your table? I know Bob would. (laughs) Um, Sennacherib isn't a real common uh, title. He was the son of Sargon II. He was an Assyrian uh, ruler. And let me talk about these Assyrians, not Syria, but Assyrians. These Assyrians were nasty buggers. These guys were mean. If they captured you, sometimes they would drive a nail through both lips. And they've been known to drag whole groups of people behind chariots all the way back to Assyria with a nail in their lip. And so you can guess what would happen to your lips if you fell down, you know. You'd, you know, it'd be really bad. So this, these guys are nasty, okay? So you did not want to be caught by them. And I'm just telling you this because I want you to realize the, the gravity of the situation when we get into this biblical account. So now Sennacherib, what we have here is in 701 B.C., he comes down from Assyria and he lays siege to Jerusalem, okay? Now this Rabshakeh that we see here listed, he is actually a spokesman on behalf of the king, and he comes before uh, Jerusalem. Now, remember, Assyrian soldiers have surrounded Jerusalem. And he sends out this message in front of everyone verbally. And he says right here, he says, Then Rabshakeh stood and cried, Hear the word of the great king. Do not let Hezekiah deceive you, for he will not be able to deliver you from my hand, nor let Hezekiah make you trust in Yahweh. Now, notice that last phrase there that Hezekiah, do not let Hezekiah make you trust in the Lord, to the Lord them as fighting words, okay? And that, of course, angers God because if there's one thing that we can do, we can always trust in him. Now what happens is later a written report comes to Hezekiah and he takes the written report, he goes into the temple, and if I could paraphrase the whole scene, he just gives it before the Lord. And he says, you've heard what this pagan has said. And for the sake of your glory and for the sake of your name, act, Lord. Okay, now what we're going to see here is the recording of what Isaiah the prophet says regarding this challenge by the Assyrians. Isaiah says, thus says Yahweh, do not be afraid because of the words that you have heard with which the servants of the king of Assyria have blasphemed me. Okay, so again, God is zealous for his name, so he's going to act. All right. Now, remember when this Rabshakeh, he's giving this message, by the way. 
He also tells all the men on the wall, and you can read about this in Isaiah 36. He says, by the way, you're all going to eat your own dung and drink your own urine. Okay? And these guys on the wall are like, okay? Because they've done it to every city they've ever laid siege to. Okay? So you start picturing how brutal this is and what these guys are thinking about, yet they all hung tough. Well, interesting, here's what happens. Here's how the Lord intervenes on the behalf of the Israelites. Second Kings 19.35, it says, Then it happened that night that the angel of the Lord went out and struck 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when men rose early in the morning, behold, all of them were dead, or literally in the Hebrew, all dead bodies. That's how it reads. Wow. Can you imagine getting up? You think, wow, this is going to be a bad one. Have you ever gone to bed at night and you think, well, this is just a nightmare? And you wake up and it is gone? That's what, these, that's what happened to these people, the 185,000 dead Assyrians. All right, now, let me show you the evidence that we actually have that this occurred. This prism here is the actual prism that they found, and it's called Taylor's Prism. It was discovered in Nineveh. Nineveh, of course, is the capital of Assyria. And it was discovered in 1830 by a British colonel named Taylor. And here's why it's so significant. This is a six-sided prism, and it contains the recounting of eight different enemies that Sennacherib laid siege to. Now, by the way, I, this is a note that I have to tell you. There are no mentions of any defeats anywhere in the Assyrian literature anywhere. Assyrians never mention they're wrong. And by the way, Egyptians don't either. Okay? It's kind of like, I hate to say this, but it's like the CNN with the Democrats. They're never wrong. It's good news all the time, okay? There's never anything that ever happens that's bad, okay? I'm sorry, but I had to say it. That's the only way. So Assyrians, there's nothing that ever happens that's bad, okay? And, and so take that as a grain of salt. Whenever they report something, it's all good news all the time. Well, interestingly, the prism ends with the shutting up of King Hezekiah in Jerusalem, but it goes no further, Okay? So in other words, in this prism, Sennacherib, it says he laid siege to so-and-so, and he laid siege to so-and-so. When he gets to Jerusalem, it says he shut up Hezekiah like a bird in the cage, and he took such and such a tribute, and then dot, dot, dot. That was the end. He never went on and did anything more. Well, why? Well, because 185,000 of his army fell. Now, you might say, well, that's a little weak, but we have actually better corroborating evidence than just this that actually corroborates uh, both the biblical account and Taylor's prism. We actually have Herodotus. He's known as the father of modern Western history. And Herodotus records this in book two. He says, That night a multitude of field mice swarmed over the Assyrian camp and devoured their quivers and their bows and the handles of their shields likewise, insomuch that they fled the next day unarmed. And notice it says many fell. Okay, so again, now we have a secular historian who has no dog in the race or pony in the show or whatever you want to say. He's not a believer. He doesn't care if we prove biblical inerrancy and inspiration, right? But yet he's validating and verifying the biblical data. Okay? So that's powerful, isn't it? But it even gets better. Now listen to what the Egyptians say. Egyptian sources also make mention of Sennacherib's defeat in the conflict with Judah as well. But ironically, they give the credit for the victory to an Egyptian god. Okay? Isn't that fitting? An Egyptian god fought on behalf of the Israelites. All right? Now, again, you always have to take everything you read with a grain of salt, but here's what you know to be true. You know something happened to Sennacherib's army that made him go home, and he had never gone home before. And again, friends, this is evidence that when the Bible says 185,000 of his men fell, it fell. They fell. In fact, so much so that when Sennacherib goes home just a few years later in 681, 
his two sons murder him in, the, in his temple. Why? Because he's an embarrassment because he lost to the Israelites at the Battle of Jerusalem. Okay? And by the way, that was prophesied by the Lord. Okay, now, I've showed you, and I, my prayer is, and my hope is, is that you'll just, you know, over time, you'll encompass this in your witnessing. And again, when people say, well, why do you believe that the Bible is true? You'll have a couple Old Testament miracles up your sleeve, so to speak. You'll say, well, what about Sennacherib? What about his prism? What about the fact that Herodotus backs up the biblical account? What about those Egyptians that say the same thing happened? You can see people on the street going, well, I, 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 I just didn't know that. You know? Well, if you don't know it, then don't say the Bible's wrong. Okay? So let's put them on the defensive. All right? Again, we want to take out their plank, their edifice of unbelief from them so that we can give them the truth. All right? Okay. Now what I want to do is I want to get into the resurrection. And we're going to spend the rest of the night together talking about the resurrection. And this slide that I have, remember I talked about circular reasoning and how the last thing we want to do when we argue is we don't want to engage in circular reasoning where we're asserting the conclusion and the premise. So, for instance, if the Bible says Jesus is true, in other words, the Bible says Jesus raised from the dead, well, Jesus, who was supposedly raised from the dead according to the Bible, says the Bible's true, that's a form of circular reasoning. Now, saying that, realize this is the ultimate authority. But for the sake of grace and the sake of witnessing to other people, we're going to give corroborating evidence. But now, also I want you to realize that in the past weeks we have proven the Bible to be the Word of God. How did we do that? Through predictive prophecies, right? We showed all those predictive prophecies that unless there was a God in heaven, you couldn't write those things. And so that proved that the Bible is in fact the Word of God. So right away that breaks in the circle. But just for the sake of argument, we also have other corroborating evidence that breaks in the circle And that's what I want to get into with the resurrection. So there's three strands of evidence, as I see it, for the proof of the resurrection. The first one is the motive. Okay, In other words, why would so many Jews follow a crucified man? The Jews in their theology know that you're cursed if you hang on a tree. Cursed is the man who hangs on a tree, right? According to Deuteronomy 21, all right? So why would these Jews, who had their, some of their theology right at least, at least we know Paul, he studied under Gamaliel, he knew his theology, why would they go after following a crucified man? Okay. So what we're going to find out is the only reason they would really do that is if he was raised from the dead. Second, the corroborating evidence of the gospel accounts. If all other historical facts prove to be true, why not the resurrection? Okay. In other words, what I'm going to show you here is evidence that shows you amazing things in the biblical account are historically accurate, such as the darkness, which is a miracle, and the earthquake. Now, if these things, friends, are historically verifiable by other historians, then we could conclude that the Bible is historically accurate. And if the Bible is historically accurate, why do we all of a sudden when we get to the resurrection say, well, that can't happen? You see what I'm saying? So we're going to prove so much stuff that when it comes to the resurrection... You're going to say, well, yeah, that, if the Bible says it, it happened. Okay? Now, the final coup de grace, though, in our evidence, and what I think gives the nail in the coffin, is the empty tomb. Even the greatest antagonists to the resurrection of Jesus affirm his tomb was empty. So all we have to do at the end of the day is argue about, why is this tomb empty? Okay? And you're going to see the reasonings and the answers that the world gives are really foolish. Okay? The resurrection is the best, best explanation. So... Let's start with motive. We're going to be starting with the motive. We're going to be talking about the Bible, the biblical account itself, and we're going to look at 1 Corinthians 15. Now realize, many scholars believe 1 Corinthians 15 is actually 
a creed. In fact, it may have, may have been dated as early as 37 AD. So Paul, remember, this is the written word of God. It's inspired. Paul is more than likely borrowing this from an early creed. So this goes very early to our Christian faith, perhaps within four years of the resurrection. Listen to what Paul writes. He says, for, and remember, he's telling the Corinthians, by the way, so there were some in the Corinthian congregation who were denying that resurrections could occur. And he says this, For I deliver to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for your sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, after that he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. I want to talk about this highlighted red portion here. Notice it's important that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. Now, the debate is, is it the fact that he's raised according to the scriptures or is the third day in here too? It seems like he's raised on the third day according to the scriptures. Well, where do we see the third day, the fact that the Messiah would be raised on the third day, where do we see that in the Old Testament? Well, one place we see it is in Hosea 6.2. However, the reference is to Israel. Now, I don't have time to get into all this, but let me just make a quick case. What I think the third day is in reference to is the fact that the Messiah would not see decay. All right? I think this is shorthand. I think the Jews had a belief that if you were in the grave longer than three days, you were in decay. If it was three days and less, you weren't seeing decay. All right? For instance, in John chapter 11, when um, Lazarus is going to be raised, what does Martha say when Jesus says, roll away the stone? She says, Lord, he's been in there four days. Okay? Now, I'm going to prove, I'm going to show you at the end of our lecture, I'm going to give you a, a quote from uh, Acts chapter 2 where Peter's preaching a sermon. He uses Psalm 16.10, write that one down, Psalm 16.10, where the Holy One would not see decay. I think the third day is shorthand for the Holy One not seeing decay. Okay? So anyway, I, think, and I don't have time to make the whole case, but I think that's what's being gotten at there. But the thing that I want to point to now is Cephas. Think about Peter. Peter, the fact that the Lord appeared to him is significant. If you recall when he's in the garden, he lops off the ear of Melchus, Remember, the chief priest's servant? And, of course, the Lord heals him, but that does nothing to dissuade them from rejecting him still as Messiah, which is unbelievable to me. But realize what Peter is thinking is the kingdom's now. The Messiah's here, and the belief that he had in Messiah was that when the Messiah comes, the kingdom comes. Okay, he didn't understand all the suffering servant passages like Isaiah 53 that are in the Old Testament. So that's why he's so disillusioned. That's why he ends up denying Christ three times. He sees his messianic savior having his beard plucked, being scourged, being ridiculed, spit on, beaten, made fun of. And he's thinking, well, what? This is supposed to be the guy who brings about the kingdom, right? Well, what happens later in Peter's life is he ends up being crucified upside down. He ends up being the one who preaches at Pentecost. And we have to ask ourselves, what accounts for the change in Peter? And I think the only thing that logically makes sense is he saw the resurrected Christ. He went from a man who denied Christ to a man who was crucified upside down because he wasn't worthy of being like Christ. Okay? And so I think that's powerful evidence from motive. Now, finally, I want to talk about James and, and also talk about Paul, I guess. But let me talk about James for a second. By the way, before I put this up, this James, we know, is the half-brother of Jesus. The reason why we know that is because if this was James, the son of Zebedee, which is the brother of John the Apostle, he is murdered too early for this. 
Okay, now this is an early account, but he's murdered too early for him to be a pillar in the New Testament church. James, the brother of John, was murdered according to Acts chapter 12, verse 2. By, I think it was by Herod. Okay, so this James must be the brother of the Lord. And that's what the best evidence points to. So, and in fact, we have a quote here from Josephus saying that. So here James is Jesus' brother who did not initially believe in him as the Messiah. Remember in John chapter 7, the brothers of Jesus, they don't believe that he's the Messiah. They don't believe anything. In fact, they actually make fun of him. They say, yeah, you go to Jerusalem and show yourself and prove that you're the Messiah, right? Well, Josephus records that James, the brother of Jesus, was put to death by Annas. Now, this isn't the same Annas that tried Jesus. It's a different one, but nonetheless a high priest. And the Sanhedrin during the reign of Nero in 62 AD. What accounts for the change? In other words, the brother of Jesus denied him in John 7, 5. And then in 62 AD, he stoned to death and they beat his brains in with a, with a, like a club because he wouldn't deny that his, his brother was the Christ and raised from the dead. Now, what accounts for that change? You know, you can pull the wool over a lot of people's eyes. You can't pull it over your brother. If I told my brother, you know what, I'm the Messiah, <laughs> he, knows, he knows better. And I would have to do a whole lot of something better than a miracle to prove otherwise, right? And so, friends, James saw something that changed his mind. And I think this gives great evidence that he saw his brother raised from the dead. Okay? And by the way, you can find this in the book of Antiquities, book 20, chapter 9. Now, let's talk about Paul. And look at this, what he says. In, um, oh, first of all, I want to talk about the six areas. There are six areas that separate the Jews from the rest of the world, from the Gentile world. And Bob has actually talked about this in Sunday school before. But what I want you to see is how radical Saul's conversion to be Paul is, what he has to give up in his life. So think about these six areas. The first one is Sabbath. The second is circumcision, sacrifices, dietary laws. And this means, what I mean by this, the Messiah of glory, meaning most Jews, not all, most Jews believe Messiah was coming to bring the kingdom. They didn't see a suffering servant. That's the majority of the Jews. I believe the ones who are saved, the ones who have salvation, like Simeon, they know Messiah is coming to suffer. But I think a lot of them misunderstood, and they see a Messiah of glory only. And finally, monotheism. These six areas separated the Jews from the Gentile world. So think about Saul. Saul believes in all these things, and yet something happens in his life where he gets rid of all of them. He's willing to throw it all away, and become, in a sense, like a Gentile. Let me explain. In Colossians chapter 2, it says, So let no one judge you in food or in drink or regarding a feast day or a new moon or Sabbaths, which are a shadow of things to come, but the substance is of Christ. So look at what he gets rid of here. He gets rid of Sabbaths, right? He gets rid of the dietary laws, the food. And I think you could argue that he gets rid of the idea of sacrifices because, remember, a feast day would incorporate like Passover, Okay, well, Jesus is our Passover lamb. We don't need that anymore. So to let no one judge you according to these feast days, whether it be Yom Kippur, whether it be uh, Passover. So sacrifices is done away with. And then when we go into Galatians 5, 6, Paul writes this. He says, For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything but faith working through love. So now circumcision means nothing to him. And then finally, talking about the Messiah of glory, listen to what he says. 1 Corinthians 1, 23, he says, But we preach Christ crucified, and this Christ crucified, sure, it's a stumbling block to the Jews, and it's a foolishness to the Gentiles, 
But notice, Paul is preaching it, and so here he gets rid of the idea of the Messiah of glory. The only thing that he's left with is monotheism that we still believe as Christians. This is Paul. This is, I mean, he formerly was Saul. This is the guy who studied under Gamaliel. This is the guy that a lot of scholars believe that he may have been slated to be the next high priest. That's the kind of pedigree that Paul had. And yet he forsakes it all, so much so that he says he's willing to call it all dung for the sake of Christ. And that's what he says here in Philippians. He says, if anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more circumcise the eighth day of the nation of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness which is in the law found blameless. But whatever these things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. And so the question we ask is, what accounts for this change? And I think the only thing that accounts for this change in Paul is that in Acts chapter 9, he in fact did see the resurrected Christ on the road to Damascus. Friends, this is more powerful um, evidence than I think we realize. The significant change. Now, a lot of people will question me when I'm witnessing to them. They'll say, well, yeah, Eric, but listen, Muslims are willing to give up their life and die for something that we believe to be false. They'll die for their God too. But notice the difference. There's a big difference. Muslims had everything to gain by becoming a Muslim. In the 600s, when Muhammad is out raiding between Mecca and Medina, his tribe is starting to thrive because of the warfare. What does Paul get for him becoming a Christian? He gets shipwrecked. He gets beaten, scourged, spit at. Sounds fun, huh? What does he get? Shunned? Uh, ridicule? Boy, sign me up for that, right? He gets nothing, and finally he gets, he gets killed by Nero. He gets beheaded. Friends, what accounts for that? You're going to forsake everything you believed in, everything that you had going for you. You're going to die. You're going to be shipwrecked, beaten, laughed at, scorned, ridiculed. You know, for men, just for you women to know, it's really bad for us to be disrespected. I think a lot of men will get into a job just to have respect. And you think about it, he was disrespected by the people that he counted most dear. Why does a man do that? Because he saw Christ raised from the dead. I think this is powerful evidence, and I think we should use it more and more when we witness. Consider Paul, the fact that Saul became Paul, powerful evidence for the resurrection. Now, Let's move on from here to the corroborating evidence. And what I'm going to be doing is showing you secular sources that validate and verify the biblical accounts within the Gospels. Okay? So I'm going to start off here with Tacitus. Tacitus, you guys, was a senator and a historian of Rome. He lived from 56 to 117 A.D. And in 115 A.D., he wrote the Annals, and he also had another work earlier, I believe, was called the Histories. All right. Now, this is found in the Annals. Listen to what Tacitus says that is so important that corroborates the biblical accounts in the Gospel. He says this, and he's writing about what Nero did. He says, Nero fastened the guilt and inflicted the most exquisite tortures on a class hated for their abominations called Christians by the populace. Christus, from whom the name had its origin, suffered the extreme penalty during the reign of Tiberius, at the hands of one of our procurators, Pontius Pilate, and a most mischievous superstition, thus checked for the moment, again broke out, not only in Judea, the first source of the evil, but even in Rome. Okay? Now, this is amazing. Look at the six things that we actually learn from here. Number one, Christ existed. Okay? And <laughs> believe it or not, there are still people who don't think that he existed. Well, that, this should put that to rest. Number two, Christ was crucified. And in fact, he was crucified under who? Under Pontius Pilate. You know, for years people said 
there's no Pontius Pilate because the only reference to him is in the Bible. Well, that's not true. We have writings from Tacitus and other people that say, yes, Pontius Pilate did in fact exist, just as the Bible stated. Three, Christians followed him. Four, this all happened during the reign of Tiberius, just like Luke said in chapter 3. So we see Luke, again, accurate, accurate all the time. Pontius Pilate existed. And finally, I think we have a mention of the resurrection. How so, you ask? I'm glad you asked. Notice it says, and a most mischievous superstition. I think that mischievous superstition that's being referred to here by Tacitus, I can't prove it, but I think that may be a veiled reference to the resurrection. Okay, because it first broke out in Judea, then later in Rome. The idea that these Christians wouldn't bow their knee to Caesar. Why? Because they served only Jesus because he was the one who was raised from the dead. That's the superstition that he's talking about. So, friends, look at we have an outline, really, of what the Bible is teaching about Jesus in a real sense right here, just from Tacitus alone. But let's move on to Josephus. Josephus, of course, is the great historian uh, of the Jews. His name now is Titus Flavius Josephus, but it used to be Joseph, son of Matthias. He was actually a Roman general, and he was caught in battle by the Romans. And the Romans said, well, you either teach our history or we'll kill you. And he thought about it and said, okay. (laughs) And he says, I'll teach your history. And so he lived. Well, Flavius Josephus is very important. This is what he writes in the Antiquities. And he's talking about the time of Christ in the 30 uh, AD range here. He says, about this time, there lived Jesus, a wise man, if indeed one ought to call him a man. For he was one who wrought surprising feats and was a teacher of such peoples accept the truth gladly. He won over many Jews and many of the Greeks. He was the Christ. When Pilate, upon hearing him accused by men of the highest standing among us, had condemned him to be crucified, those who had in the first place come to love him did not give up their affection for him. On the third day he appeared to them restored to life, for the prophets of God had prophesied these and countless other marvelous things about him, and the tribe of Christians so-called after him has still this day not disappeared. Okay, Now, to be fair, there's a lot of scholars that look at this and they think later redactors that are Christians may have tampered with this. Now, what evidence would we have of this? Well, remember, Josephus is not a believer. And notice some of the language here. He says, if indeed one ought to call him a man. That seems to indicate that he believed that he was God. Well, did Josephus really believe he was God? I don't know. Okay, but more than likely he didn't. And it says such people as accept the truth gladly, or he was the Christ. Scholars say, well, listen, that is too perfect. That's somebody who's a Christian, somebody who believes in Christ. Now, again, they're just going by speculation. This is, this is the best evidence we have from Josephus. This is what he said. But every, and this is important, every single scholar agrees to this, that Josephus, from this quote, we can determine that Christ existed, that he was, in fact, crucified, and that there were reports of his resurrection and that Christians followed him. And that's important because, again, that's corroborating the biblical accounts and tells us that there were Christians who were willing to follow Christ because they believed he was raised from the dead. Okay, So clearly, we have early attestation to the biblical accounts through Josephus. The next one I want to look at is Pliny the Younger. He had a dad. No surprise was Pliny the Elder. And Pliny the Elder, he died in a volcano eruption, uh, Mount, is it Vesuvius? Am I saying that right? I think that's how you pronounce it. Um, I believe it was in 79 AD. Well, Pliny the Younger, he ends up being a governor of Bithynia, which is in northwestern Turkey, and he is friends with the emperor. So what you're going to see here is a correspondence where he's basically telling the uh, emperor 
of Rome, what he's doing about the Christian problem within Bithynia. This is what he writes. And he would have written this about 111 AD. He says, I have asked them if they are Christians. And again, remember, he's writing this to the emperor. He says, and if they admit it, I repeat the question a second and a third time with a warning of the punishment awaiting them. They also declared that the sum total of their guilt or error amounted to no more than this. They had met regularly before dawn on a fixed day to chant verses alternately amongst themselves in honor of Christ as if to a God and also to bind themselves by oath, not for any criminal purpose, but to abstain from theft, robbery, and adultery. Okay. Now, let me show you what we learn here from Pliny. Again, we know that Christians existed. We, of course, know that Christ existed. Um, they believed, these Christians, that Jesus was God. It says right here, Christ as if to a God. And then three, their beliefs made them abstain from immorality. So something happened that made these Christians act differently than the Romans around them. Now, what accounts for that? This is a pagan world. Um, and the people in Turkey and all that, these are pagans. What accounts for the Christians acting differently? I think it's the resurrection. Now, let me give you one other thing that kind of snuck in on me today. Notice it also says that they met regularly before dawn on a fixed day. I think that may be a veiled reference to the resurrection. How can I reason that way? Well, remember, we know that the Christians started meeting on what day? On Sunday, right? And why did they meet on Sunday? It was always to commemorate and to celebrate the resurrection of their Lord. So that, I believe, would be the fixed day. So in a sense here, if we take it a few steps back, this idea that they met on a fixed day could be a reference to the fact they believed in the resurrection. Why? Why else would they meet on a fixed day, which would be Sunday? Because they're commemorating the resurrection of their Lord. Okay? So again, we learn actually quite a bit from these secular historians. But again, we at least know that Christ existed, Christians existed, they followed and they believed that Jesus was God, and they abstained from immorality. Now, this next one, this guy named Flagin, what you're going to see in this account, I love this account because he is going to verify and validate uh, much of what we see in the gospel accounts when it talks about Jesus on the cross. All right? So let me show you the biblical accounts of Christ on the cross, specifically related to the darkness. In Luke chapter 23, Luke writes this, verses 44 through 45. He says, It was now about the sixth hour, and darkness fell over the whole land until the ninth hour because the sun was obscured. Now, the sixth hour, of course, would be noon, and it was dark for three hours, okay, until three o'clock. And notice the reason why Luke ascribes to, uh, to the darkness is that the sun was obscured, but he doesn't say what it was obscured by, okay? Now, many people try to claim that this perhaps was an eclipse, but what I'm going to show you is evidence that it really probably couldn't be an eclipse, okay? In fact, I think it, I mean, we can prove that it wasn't an eclipse, and I'll show you why. So something obscured the sun, though, all right? But again, we see this idea of darkness. Now, in Matthew 27:45, he says the same thing. Now, from the sixth hour, darkness fell upon all the land until the ninth hour. Okay, and then he goes on to talk about the earthquake in Matthew 27:54, right here. Now, what's the point? I won't read this to you, but let me show you the point here. We have actually extra-biblical corroboration of these things happening. This is from a man named uh, Paul Meyer. Has anybody heard of Paul Meyer? Um, yeah, you've seen him on TV a time or two. He wrote a book called Pontius Pilate. And, oh, first of all, let me talk about Flagin, because he's going to mention Flagin in his quote here. Flagin is a man who wrote the Olympiads. These are chronicles of the Greek games, and the Greek games started in 776 B.C., and they actually go to 339 A.D., 
but he drops dead in 137, so his books end there, okay? And he has 16 books, all right? So he is chronicling the Olympics, and what you're going to see is that ties into our timing of these hours of darkness, all right? Let me show you how. This is from Paul Meyer in his book, Pontius Pilate. He says, this phenomenon, he's talking about the darkness up here, was visible in Rome, Athens, and other Mediterranean cities. According to Tertullian, it was a cosmic or world event. And he goes on, Flagin, a Greek author from Syria, writing a chronology soon after 137 AD, reported that in the fourth year of the 202nd Olympiad, which is 33 AD, there was the greatest eclipse of the sun and that it became night in the sixth hour of the day or noon, just as the biblical accounts are saying, so that the stars even appeared in the heavens. There was a great earthquake in Bithynia and many things were overturned in Nicaea. Now, friends, first of all, notice that whatever was visible here as far as the um, darkness, it was visible in Rome and in Athens. Now, that is many lines of longitude away from Jerusalem, isn't it? And normally when we have an eclipse, it's not that widely seen. This is seen by really the known world. That is shocking for people to see an eclipse. And what's more, the eclipse was so significant that they actually saw the stars come out. And isn't it interesting? It corresponds to the very day. Remember, prophesied in Daniel 9, 24 through 27, it said that Jesus would be crucified in 33 A.D.? Well, how does Flagin reckon that? Well, look at this. It says the 202nd Olympiad. Realize the Olympics started in 776, if you, and they were every four years. Okay, So if you multiply 776 you divide, or divide it by four, you have 194 Olympics. Well, then you don't have anything on zero. There's no year zero, so it starts at one. And then you have another one in 580 and then 980 and so forth. Well, if you add it up, the 202nd Olympiad ends up being on the 29th, year ad but it's notice it's the fourth year so add four to the 29 you end up with 33 ad that's the exact year daniel prophesied that the christ would come in so friends realize i talked a little bit about a man named harold honer he was the one who dated Christ's crucifixion and death to 33 ad he doesn't even use this evidence he uses other evidence friends it's overwhelming the evidence for Jesus dying in 33 AD. And what I think is so shocking here also is this earthquake. This earthquake was really an earthquake. It was not only felt in Jerusalem, but as far away as Nicaea and all the way to northwestern Turkey. That's Bithynia. Friends, that's a long ways. And again, we have extra-biblical corroboration of these miracles. Friends, these are miracles that are happening. These aren't. I don't think you can ascribe these things to an eclipse or just a small earthquake. This is worldwide cosmic event because the creator of the cosmos was in fact on the cross absorbing the full measure of God's wrath. And so here we have not just corroboration of some event, but of miracles. And I think that's significant. Okay? All right. Now let me give you a summary slide of what we learn from the secular world as far as corroboration of the biblical accounts. So on the left side of the screen... What I'm going to show you is what we can learn about uh, Jesus from Josephus, Flagin, Pliny the Younger, and Tacitus. And on the right side of the screen is the biblical reference. First of all, we know that Jesus existed. Of course, the New Testament speaks to that. Jesus was crucified. We can learn from uh, Josephus, Flagin, Pliny the Younger, and Tacitus that Jesus was crucified during the reign of Tiberius, that Jesus was crucified under Pontius Pilate, that there was three hours of darkness during the crucifixion, 
that an earthquake happened during the crucifixion, that Jesus was crucified in 33 AD, that there was a belief in Jesus' resurrection, that Christians believe Jesus was God, and that Christians abstain from immoral acts. Friends, that's a lot, and it all comes from sources other than the Bible. And yet we have people today who will say, well, why do you believe the Bible's accurate? Okay? Well, friends, this is amazing. And again, I'd like to point you to the fact that there was three hours of darkness and the earthquake. These are miracles. These aren't just events. I think these are miraculous things that are happening. And so we have secular corroboration, again, here of biblical miracles. So what I want to do now is take our break. And I want to, when we come back in 10 minutes, I want to spend the rest of the time talking about the empty tomb because I think this is the final nail in the coffin. This is the best evidence we have. And we'll talk about that and then we'll uh, take questions. All right?